Right, so today I am in Cambridge and I'm actually at home and uh, recording this podcast remotely via Zoom, the first one that I have ever done uh, where I'm not actually with my victim in person face to face, but I'm delighted to be having a conversation with uh, Jonathan Keats. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, I am delighted to be here in the cloud with you. I should explain that the reason for my absence is distance, isn't it? And because you are marooned in what I assume to be sunny San Francisco, and I'm here in Cambridge. And we met when I went out earlier in the year to Silicon Valley to try and find the home of the internet and to explore art and technology. And I came across you, I think I found you on the the SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence uh, website, where I think you have been doing an an artist in residence program there. And I don't uh, claim to be intelligent, let alone extraterrestrial. (laughs) But then, uh, but that, that in turn led me to your Wikipedia page, where not only did I see that you uh, described yourself as an experimental philosopher, which I thought was an excellent, I thought it really was an extra twist to the idea of the conceptual artist. But then as I read through your little, your quite extensive profile actually in the projects that you've done, I found myself laughing out loud at some of them and and the, and the, your your approach to to life the universe and everything so there you go that's my little cue in for you now to explain maybe in more more detail or... I, I guess that my approach has been one born out of a curiosity that I've had for as long as I can remember and an attempt to figure out where to situate that curiosity within the structures of our society and finding that there really are not many spaces in which curiosity can be given full and free reign. So I studied philosophy, the natural decision for somebody who didn't want to specialize in any body of knowledge, but really someone interested in thinking about everything. But I found that philosophy was challenged, I would say, by its own history in the sense that it's too much about working within some subfield and doing so with enormous and remarkable rigor, but without the latitude that that I feel that I need. And so I fled, I abandoned academia in order to be able to do philosophy as I imagine philosophy ought to be done which is to say my childish notion, some sort of idea that anyone could be Socrates and we all have actually an obligation to attempt to be, at least at some level, engaged in every question about anything and everything in our world in order to be be fully alive, to be citizens and to be members of this global community. I think that comes across loud and clear in, in what you do. There's, for me, there's a sense of not only curiosity, but playfulness, but, but also there's a, there's a real sense of, I suppose, trying to get to the bottom of things or trying to work things through or trying to see things differently. And what I like also about what you do is the way in which you carry it 
I was going to say to to absurdity, but not necessarily. But to but it moves beyond just being a conceptual plaything, or or a lot of lot of conceptual art kind of is satisfied with the idea in itself. But you seem to go the extra mile with it. And so, for, as an example, I came along to one of your talks where you were talking about your project to give plants the vote. And I remember to begin with being tickled by this as an idea, but then I found myself more and more intrigued by the actual, the philosophical underpinnings, the reasonings that you gave for it, which seemed to be more and more coherent in, in the context of the damage that we're doing to the planet and who's in charge here. And But then, not only that, you then went into some field studies to try and actually see if you could ascertain what the plants would think on any given topic, which I thought was really carrying the idea right through to its conclusion. Would that be a fair way of describing things? Well, I think that that really was only the start because I'm <laughs> also actively looking at it at the level of policymaking and law. The project is trying to figure out technically speaking, how would we know what other species wanted or what is the political will of non-human species, including plants and animals, potentially also fungi, bacteria, and all the rest. But then there's the ethical issue of whether, in fact, other species ought to be included in the democratic decision-making process because they too are stakeholders and we are making decisions on their behalf where they need to be recognized and to be given autonomy. So in order to be able to work that through, I need to address this at a technical level, trying to understand the science and technologically to address how we can work at scale to determine the state of other organisms on our planet. And as a result of measuring, for instance, stress level of other species, to be able to derive a sense of their political will. But then there's also the policy level. That is to say, how are we going to give this traction? How are we going to make these decisions that might be made in the case of a vote that includes all species, how might we make that binding? What would it require here in the U.S. in terms of a constitutional amendment? Or could we, in fact, work at a municipal level? Would the federal government block a municipal level decision-making process that included other species? So working with Earth Law Center, which is a, an NGO that works in the space of ecocentric law, we're trying to figure out what it will take for this to be legally binding. It seems to me that the root problem really is this artificial separation where we have separated ourselves from nature and that really the reintegration, the recognition that we are a part of nature is ultimately what is required of us in order for us to get past the ecological catastrophe that we're in. And that means potentially initially inviting other species into our space, politically speaking, intellectually speaking, and so forth. It seems as though 
we need to find a way to price in the true value of, of the ecosystems which we share on, on this fantastic planet. And at the moment, we don't. And that's partly why we're getting into such bother, because we treat it all as free and gratis and we don't give them any say in the matter. But I think that that's a really important. It's important to make a distinction here. I don't mm -hmm. think that it's just a matter of pricing them in. In fact, that is quite actively happening right now in terms of calculating ecosystem services. But it puts nature, quotation marks, in a subservient role. It commoditizes nature as a means by which to then be able to calculate how we can further commoditize and yeah, no, I, I see that. And that's a, that's an interesting clarification. And, and it's not even just a matter of correctly pricing nature, but it's it's seeing nature as 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 having autonomy or having rights in in and of themselves. Yeah, I'm, I'm working right now as well on banking law and trying to figure out in terms of banking how other species might attain the means according to our own banking system to accumulate wealth. Any nation state could potentially allow for other species to bank and to enter into the international banking system. Now, if you just look at it from the standpoint of intellectual property law, so we talk about biomimicry all the time. We talk about how all these other species are prodigies coming up with ingenious ideas like Velcro and bullet trains that are inspired by the beak of a kingfisher. But then it all turns out to be greenwashing because we then assume that the inventions are ours and that we're the ones who have the power to deploy and also the right to profit from those inventions. So what I've been looking at is how we might revise intellectual property law to recognize the intellectual property of other species in terms of their ability to patent what they invent, which might be a co-invention with humans, but nevertheless, where they would have some basis by which they would be able to derive royalties. And just at that level, there's an enormous amount of money to be earned, which, by the way, is not ultimately how I see this playing out. I mean, I'm not trying to advocate for a system by which we, we somehow tantalize other species into becoming capitalists. I'm thinking about this as a way in which we can ultimately upset the system that we have by virtue of changing the distribution of wealth so radically that we no longer find the economic system that got us to that state of affairs to be viable. I mean, so this is a, a perfect example of how something that starts off as something that's a, as a little thought experiment and what if we give plants the vote or something. And, and now I'm in almost like Alice in Wonderland down this rabbit hole of alternative possibilities that the more you describe them to me, the more they make sense. And yet I'm also kind of thinking, well, hang on a second, is, is this really going to happen? So I'm wondering what the status of those, of your thought, your thought experiments, are. but then is it as a, as a generalized uh, what if just to kind of get people thinking differently? Or are you really thinking that this is something that could fly? And so when you pitch to an organization, say, how about this? Let, let's do some work around here. I'd, I'd like to work with some of your scientists to carry out some tests to see whether plants can intimate their responses to a particular set of stimuli. Do you do it as, a, as an art project, almost abstract 
experiment or is it as a course of actually applied science would you say i think it's all the above i don't think that i know in fact i know that i don't know whether any of this is viable or wise but it seems to me that these are questions that we need to be asking and we need to take these questions seriously which is to say that we need to retain the capacity to ask what if and to ask questions that seem completely outlandish and to entertain conclusions that might be totally absurd on the surface. But we need to do so with a degree of rigor and seriousness that we can then ascertain what the conclusions might be and what the implications could be. And we need to do it communally. We need to do it at the level of our society as a whole. And that really only becomes possible in a sort of shovel-ready approach, so to speak, where I am taking this question that I ask myself and figuring out what the implications might be and then working it through in a way that I can then figure out how we might potentially enact it and then bringing it into the public sphere in a way that it could just happen. And therefore that we are at a decision point where we need to decide whether we actually want it to happen. Otherwise it remains notional. Otherwise it remains in the realm of entertainment all too often, or even remains in the realm of philosophy and in the pejorative sense of the word, that it's something that is not real, not realistic. I think that what we need to do is somehow to be utterly and completely unrealistic and totally realistic at the same time. That is to say, we need to retain the playfulness. We need to retain the ability to imagine in ways that seemingly only children are allowed to do in our society, but we need to do it in a way that we can take seriously where it leads us in a way that we don't take children seriously. And by the way, children should be involved in this process. Of course, other species as well, as I've said earlier, should be involved in this process. And I don't claim to know what to do, but I do have notions that seem worth exploring. And and I think you characterized it perfectly a little bit earlier. So to take an example, where now I am working on specific policy recommendations to the government of El Salvador for how to involve other species in democratic decision-making processes. That started out when I was on an airplane flying to Hong Kong reading about how some guy in China had managed to patent much of the IKEA catalog in China. Can I just rewind a, a second and say, did I hear you correctly and say that you're advising the El Salvador government? Well, Earth Law Center was requested to provide some policy advice to the government of El Salvador. And I am consulting philosopher there. And the interest of the government was specifically to do with forests. And so as a policy note, we included this approach to taking forests as advisors in terms of advising government policy. And there are many opportunities to do this, whether they actually are 
implemented, whether anyone follows through, that's another matter. But what I find to be particularly interesting about working with Earth Law Center and in general with lawyers who are involved in ecocentric law is that there is a real willingness to try to think beyond law as we know it and to do so at every turn. But but this has to happen in the world. And I think that I have no idea whether I'm an artist. I have practiced in the art world largely because I couldn't do philosophy where philosophy is typically done. In other words, I would never get tenure. I don't think anyone would ever give me a PhD. I've now been able to come back around and I'm working with University of Southern California, San Jose State University, and myriad other schools where I'm able to develop these ideas, but I'm on the outside and therefore at a safe distance as far as they're concerned. I think that what I feel the compulsion to do is to let ideas play out. And the art world was the first space I found where I could at least take ideas and instantiate them in terms that others could experience. And what I found is there's a sort of a slippage because what it means to be in a space that is defined by a gallery or museum versus to be out on the street. And I was out on the street more than galleries or museums from the start because very quickly the art world figured out they really didn't have any need for me either with a few extraordinary exceptions such as modernism gallery where I've been able to show my work for past decade and a half and a few museums that have been very supportive as well but by and large I've been out on the street. Well what I think is particularly fascinating you found at least a partial home in art in a way that maybe other disciplines somehow uh, you didn't feel as though you quite fitted, but art is quite a broad church in that regard. And although it wasn't a a complete fit there, I think a lot of artists have also got a a sense in which they don't feel as though they belong even in the art world, even if they do consider themselves to be artists. So I thought that was rather a great way of thinking about the role that art can play as it is a home for all these clutters of ideas and thoughts and different ways of approaching things in a way that other disciplines are not always so able to find a space for it and your thoughts also around curiosity creativity playfulness and the need for looking at things differently these are all absolutely central but then the the thing that does seem to mark you out slightly is that then the real world element there are so many flavors of being an artist and one of them might be like a political artist or somebody who's interested in the the real world dynamics but they stop at the gallery door you know it it stays within the gallery whereas your work is is going as you say beyond the, the gallery and actually into the real world and test driving it for real I have a real aversion to much of how the art world has set itself up. And it's an interesting trajectory to consider the trajectory of art and the trajectory of philosophy, which if you take natural philosophy, you're talking about the sciences and ultimately also you're talking about the humanities. So effectively, all organized bodies of knowledge and systems of thinking 
have become increasingly specialized over the past century and actually even before that in the sense that nobody anymore is a natural philosopher in the way that you would have found centuries ago where somebody was able to work across disciplines without even recognizing that those disciplines were in any way restrictive. And the reason for that is that these bodies of knowledge have become incredibly detailed and the methods have become incredibly complex. So to me, what's interesting is to see how at around the same time that everything got formalized in all of these disciplines, art actually had the opposite where with Marcel Duchamp as the protagonist, perhaps, and with his placement of a urinal on a pedestal as the defining act, perhaps, we have this moment where art as a very specialized and skill-based system, where you are a painter or a sculptor, almost in the sense of it being a guild, it all gets de-skilled. And that is exhilarating. And that is the art world that was enticing to me at the outset. And there still is some of that to be found. And I think that that is this open space that we so desperately need. But the thing is that that led to insecurity and it led to insecurity partly because you no longer had the support structures of a guild system. In other words, all the ways in which you keep people out that date to before Duchamp. And also you had this sort of insecurity that every other discipline was becoming increasingly specialized and credentialed. And so as a result, there's this professionalization that's happened and also this commodification that has increasingly been the other dominating force within the arts. So that you have the museums, that are effectively trying to be other than the world in order to have some way in which they justify what they do. And in the process of the professionalization of curation, criticism, and ultimately art making through MFA and other programs, you end up in this system that is increasingly restrictive because it's self-restricting, self-defining, and it's catastrophic because it, it turns art into a form of inquiry into art. And that's interesting, but it's only some small part of it. And it becomes less interesting the more meta you get, because ultimately you're just kind of, you're entering into this feedback loop. So while I think that art is remarkable and extraordinary at its best, I think that the system is largely self-defeating and there really is no other game in town, so to speak. So I don't do what I do to be obstinate. I don't do what I do in order to feign originality. I just don't know what else to do or how else to do it or where else to do it. So I kind of have let it take on its own form and don't ask too many questions. Well, I think that's that's absolutely fascinating and a, and a and a and a great summary of, of of perhaps where we've got to 
with, with the whole art game and the whole art world and and the, the various flavors of it and uh and you're as it were breaking free or moving beyond and outside and around those uh constraints so uh well maybe that is a good point at which to pause and have a cup of tea sounds good Right, so we are back after a cup of tea for me and a cup of tea for you as well, I believe. Yes, I, that cannot be independently verified as I'm halfway around the world. Mm. Yeah, I can see that I can see the tea bag, so I'll take that as red. Okay, so well, what I wanted to ask you a little bit about was um, to kind of be a little bit of a mirror for me to reflect back on my travels to Silicon Valley. I spoke to several artists and a number of people and I went in search of Silicon Valley and I'm not entirely sure that I found it or rather maybe I, I wasn't sure what I was looking for but I kind of assumed that there was going to be this kind of real high-tech artist creative hub. Everybody would be obsessed with what Google and Apple were doing where the metaverse was going, what's going to be the future of privacy and surveillance and data and all of these things. But actually, it just seemed like any other part of the world, largely. And I don't know, you're, you're my kind of representative of one here, but I was just wanted to reflect back on how you saw the future of the internet. It's such a huge topic, the whole idea of where technology is going. My visit was by no means a failure, though, I should hastily say. I found myself returning absolutely overloaded with all these ideas about art and technology and where everything's going. No answers, but just bogged down with questions. So I suppose, really, I'm inviting you just to say a few words about your thoughts on art, technology, Google, whatever is foremost in your mind as a citizen closer to Silicon Valley than I am. It seems to me that artists desperately need to engage technology in their work, not as a way in which to augment the work, but as a way in which to question technology. And what is so desperately needed is not to have more consumption of that technology, but to have artists working with the technology in order to be able to discover affordances and to reveal limitations. And Silicon Valley is not a place that is very friendly to those sorts of tasks. Financially speaking, as an artist, it's very hard to live here. Most people who are here are technologists. And while many of them might make art on the side for Burning Man or in related contexts, there is not really a critical approach in that work, nor is there on the part of technology companies that can afford to bring artists in as residents or can afford to commission work nor are they 
very interested in commissioning work or bringing in artists who are going to upset the apple cart, who are going to criticize the technologies that these companies have been developing and that they're that are the basis of their fortune. So the result is that there is a filter, I believe, locally in terms of who is here and how they're engaging technology. And from farther afield, there is the problem that people are farther afield and that also, by and large, still there is a greater interest in what the technology can do than in what the technology does as a matter of unintended consequences or intended consequences that are not the consequences that are desired by the consumer. But the funny thing is that I didn't set out feeling terribly paranoid about tech and high tech and where it's all going. And I'm, and I'm what I'm trying to calibrate, and I suppose what would be my single question if I had one is, should we be worried? Should we be concerned? Is it something that is going to be causing us problems down the line? The more I started digging, the more concerned I got. And I didn't know if that's just me getting older and grumpier and thinking back to, you know, sunlit uplands of the early internet and, and pre-internet even, or whether those concerns are justified and we should all be waking up and chucking away our smartphones. I think we should always be concerned. I never got a smartphone to begin with, or a cell phone for that matter. And that isn't out of paranoia. It's because I never felt that I needed one. And the more that I've gotten to know them through the vicarious experience of other people having them, the more that I feel that I really would be losing more than I'd be gaining by acquiring it a cell phone. Well, this is what I'm starting to think. I'm starting to think, you know, that, as you say, the balance is actually not really tipped in my favour with a lot of these things. And, and I'm slightly going off social media and things like that. And I'm having, maybe I'm having a bit of an ex- existential crisis over it all, as to, but it is making me question what the dynamic is between ourselves as autonomous, thinking creative individuals and the technology that is potentially warping our brains or molding us or sending us down certain pathways that are not necessarily but, about every you. technology does i mean i think that we that's why i say that we always need to be cautious and we always need to be intentional in terms of what we use and how we use it indoor plumbing and believe me i'm very happy to have it has had a profound impact artificial lighting In terms of the human mind, it's been a profound change that as much as Steve Jobs might want to believe, if he were still with us, that he had changed everything like none before him. In fact, I would argue that indoor plumbing and artificial lighting had a more profound effect. So I think that what has happened If we look at the broad sweep of technology from Paleolithic hand axes to the smartphone, what we find is that there is perhaps an easier choice to be made whether to nap or not to nap that piece of flint than there is to consider what the implications are with all of the apps and all of the 
ways in which potentially a smartphone becomes a mode of surveillance or it becomes a means by which one is evaluating oneself in terms of how others see one on Instagram and all the rest, it simply becomes more complicated. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that uh, every generation since time immemorial has, has had its own challenges. A new, a new technology has come on the stream, as you say, whether it's a kind of paleolithic axe or whether it's the motor car or the light bulb or the printing press or whatever, which would have been seismic changes and law of unintended consequences in ways that people just could not have foreseen necessarily, or even if they could they were either powerless to stop them or, or kind of welcome them with open arms. So, you know, is, is there a difference here or, or is it just more of the same, really? Any claims to difference in kind, I think, have a very high burden of proof. And that burden of proof is on the one who makes that claim. I simply, as a matter of my own intuition, find that we are all too often prone to see the present as different and that it seems that when I put myself in the position fictively because I don't have a time machine of another place in time, I find that the change seems to be as dramatic and as traumatic potentially as well. I think the only thing that I can think of that would be relevant here would be not the difference, but the differential. In other words, what is the sophistication of the technology in relation to the sophistication of the user? And I think that there are times in history where we have much greater sophistication on the part of the user and others where there's greater sophistication on the part of the technology. And it seems to me right now that as a matter of the differential, we are probably seeing the latter. The technologies seem to have gotten ahead of us, and it's incumbent upon us to counteract that. And it is possible for us to do so, I believe, because there is no difference in kind and because there has always been a dynamic between those two forces. There's no reason why we shouldn't have the capacity to change the equation such that the technology is not dominant. So we are in a place and a time where we need to be working very hard to make the changes that make those systems integrated in the same way that I speak of humans needing to be integrated into nature or reintegrated, that likewise, all of those systems need to be reintegrated into the natural systems and ultimately this larger than life system that we refer to as Gaia. Well, that's rather reassuring. I've, I feel myself almost uh, persuaded. I, I, and I don't mean that. <laughs> that sounds... Don't take the bait. <laughs> don't believe it for a minute. Uh, <laughs> but I'm, I am not an optimist, I don't believe. I don't have good reason to be optimistic, except for the fact that by acting with the belief that the world is not going to be lost, I feel empowered to act to prevent the ruination. 
optimism is, is a good course of action in, in and of itself. And I've often thought to myself that, well, we might all be going to hell in a handcart and we might actually not as a species be able to prevent ourselves from, from self-destructing in, in some sort of a way. But the sensible course of action seems to be to continue as if we do have choice and we do have agency and, and we are going to fix this somehow because otherwise we certainly won't. So I think that is a nice way of putting it. Um, and uh, that may be a good point at which to uh, draw this fascinating conversation to a close. And it's been brilliant to hear about all your ideas and the way in which you've had the foresight and the, the, the stepping back to itness to revisit some fairly stubborn ideas with some fresh insights and to present them back in challenging and, and humorous ways. So um, thank you very much. And I should just say as a final teaser to my listeners that um, we're delighted to say that you're going to be doing a project with us for the Cambridge Festival in the spring, for which news will follow in due course. I'll, I'll probably leave it at that, because if we open that can of worms, we'll never finish. Would that be fair? I think that it's fair to say that we're simply looking at the prospects of opening a library that will invite beings from throughout the universe to try to figure out the largest problems that we all face. So that's an optimistic note that we're ending on. Perfect. Excellent. We got there in the end. Well, thank you again so much, Jonathan. It's been uh, fantastic to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Really have enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Something to Do with Art. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback via social media. And check out the podcast notes for links and further information. That's it for this episode. Many thanks to the very wonderful Beric Livingston for the music, Danielle Blyde for logo design, and to everyone who has taken part and helped me with this project. I hope to catch up with you again soon.